Hello and welcome back to Cloisterbell, a weekly Doctor Who podcast hosted by Liam and Rob. Hello and welcome to the Cloisterbell podcast. I'm Liam. And I'm Rob. Hope you're all well. And this week we'll be looking at the absolute classic, which is Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah, so it was released in 1988. Mm-hmm. It always seemed like such a long time ago. And it seems like five minutes since the DVD was released. But when I was watching the DVD, I noticed it came out in 2001. And so more time has lapsed since the DVDs have been released than had been since it was broadcast and released on DVD. Feeling old, Rob. Yeah. <laughs> crazy. The, re- the, the revelation of Remembrance of the Daleks. Wow. Um, well, go- going way back, yeah, because this, so this is a, a classic Doctor Who story that was broadcast in our lifetime, so I would have been one when this was originally broadcast. Um, but when I got into Doctor Who... Uh, I'm just trying to remember the order of the stories. I think this would have been the um, this would have been, I think, the sixth or seventh uh, story that I watched, uh, and it was, and I, I remember it was bought for me as a present because it came. Um, I think it may have been a Christmas present. I can't quite remember, but it came in a tin. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was limited edition, and it was partnered up with the Chase. Uh, the William Hartnell story, and then yeah. it came with this Remains of the Daleks, and it came with a nice little book, which is about the history of the Daleks in the uh, the TV series, and I've still got it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> I've still got all my videos. Not many of them. I don't think I had as many as you. Oh yeah, my, my, oh, mine was insane. I've got rid of most of them. I've still got, uh, obviously, this set. I've, I've still got Trial of the Time Lord, the Ice Warriors, Art Sharder, I've still got that with a uh, video, because that was in a double video pack, but that came with a video and a book of the script. Uh, I just can't cool. part with them, yeah. My first McCoy experience on video was the Hartnell Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, yeah, really? Oh, I love those releases. I think, yeah. uh, well, my, my f- because uh, Remembrance of the Daleks was my second Sylvester McCoy story, my first was Dragonfire. But yeah, still, still trying to get my head around that. It was um, so long since the DVD came out. 2001. Yeah. Jeez. Of course, I, I've got the the original DVD, which mm. has been remastered since. Uh, yes, uh, I forgot I forgot when the special edition came out, but that's uh, that's the one I've got. And I think it came out. Well, it came out in the Davros box set exclusively. You don't have the Davros DVD, do you? The box set. No, no, I don't. I remember there was... Yes, because I remember uh, when Remembers of the Daleks was re-released, they did include uh, a documentary which apparently had been exclusive to the Davros set. Okay. They also released a Big Finish audio exclusive to that set. Ah, okay. Which one was that? Um, Davros, and it was a follow-up to the Davros spin-off series that they'd been doing. Ah, right, Okay. But I thought that was interesting that they'd released a big finished story in a DVD box set. It was kind of bringing it closer to the, the TV canon. Yeah, well, funny enough, because there's some talk amongst some of the fans for for when they're doing uh, the Blu-ray releases, 
because uh, Sylvester McCoy is going to get his first box set out, which is uh, season 26. Yeah. Uh, which doesn't include the TV movie, obviously. Uh, so what? <laughs> so, I, know, but... I don't understand this argument to include it. No, no. Well, I think what it is, it's sort of. It was the idea that, well, either they'll do something really special with the TV movie. And if not, then it would make sense to release it with the um, season 26. But what some fans are saying is that if they do re-release the TV movie in a fancy Blu-ray box set, what they thought would be quite good is that um, if they somehow cover the wilderness years, so include like uh, the original televised version of 30 Years in the TARDIS and then include more than 30 Years in the TARDIS. Mm-hmm. But also what some people are saying is it'd be quite nice if they also included some of the big finish Paul McGann stories. Just on audio, not um, animated. <laughs> uh, no, th- animated would be interesting. But no, I think people are just saying um, just the uh, just as an audio. Yeah. They've actually released, you know, the first four Paul McGann stories. Mm-hmm. They released them in a box set, and it was the height of a DVD, so it could go on the shelf with your DVDs, and um, it had some exclusive behind the scenes there. Oh, um, okay. And I got the impression they were going to do more of that, but it kind of phased out, mm-hmm. and that never came back. But yeah, it would be it would be cool to have um, have them included with the with the DVD with the Blu-ray rather. Mm-hmm. There would be there will be a, a cause to bring back the TV movie on on Blu-ray because you'll be aware that if you get the TV movie now on Blu-ray, it's an upscaled version of the DVD. Yes. And yeah. they physically could have went back and remastered it, but they didn't. Yeah, I mean, it's it's because we don't know too much about the schedule for the for the Blu-rays. Um so I don't know how much credence we're supposed to give this, but there are some rumours floating around which apparently they found the original um, sort of film that it was shot on. Mm-hmm. So they would be able to do a proper full-scale Blu-ray upgrade. But anyway, just um, so just going back, so because I've got the original, uh, I've still got the original VHS release of Remembrance of the Daleks, and as I said, it came with this... Uh, this nice little book giving a, a history of the TV Dalek stories. I thought I would read the plot synopsis that it has for Remembrance of the Daleks. Go on then. Alright, okay. <coughs> right, are you sitting comfortably? <laughs> right, it says uh, Remembrance of the Daleks, four episodes, 1988. Entering his quirky seventh incarnation, the Doctor takes the TARDIS back to the Shoreditch area of London in November 1963 to attend to some unfinished business. Sometime in his past, he has hidden on Earth a remote stellar manipulator device engineered by the Time Lords called the Hand of Omega. This can customise stars, releasing great power, power which the Daleks seek to give them mastery over time. The Doctor and his companion, the streetwise Earth teenager Ace, soon find that the Hand is sought by two quite opposed Dalek factions. The Imperial Daleks from Skaro are operating through a local school in the area, transmitting down from the orbiting mothership. The Renegade Daleks, enemies of the Imperial Daleks, have formed an alliance with a group of fascists operating in London. The Doctor skillfully manipulates events so that the Imperial Daleks defeat the Renegade faction and capture the Hand, but when the Dalek Emperor, who is revealed to be Davros, attempts to use it... Hold on. 
Well, yeah. Sorry, no, go on. Is this is this wrote on the back of the DVD? It's the VHS box? No, no, this is in the book. Oh, sorry, go on, continue. <laughs> it's a bit spoilery. No need to buy it. Well, I'll have a, hang on, go after on. I finish reading this, I'll re- not out loud, so, I'll have a quick glance of what it says on the VHS and see. That's cool, guy. continue. Sorry, I interrupted. Go no, on. No, no, that's all right. Um, but when the Dalek Emperor, who's revealed to be Davros, attempts to use it, the device causes Skaro's son to go supernova in the far future and destroys the Dalek's homeworld. The hand then returns on a reverse trajectory to destroy the Dalek ship from which it was launched. Okay, so the hand of Omega was sent into the far future. Yeah. Because that's not, that's not clarified on TV. Yes, it is. It's, it's, in the future, I wasn't sure which way. Ah, oh, right, I see. Well, I think... I can see where you're coming from because it's not it's not clearly spelled out, but uh, I think it's it just says entering Scaro timeline. Yeah. But also, when the Doctor is talking the Dalek to death, mm-hmm. he mentions something or other about um, no Daleks around for the past thousand years or the next thousand years or so. I think uh, he's no. I think what he says in that he talks about how um, how Scaro is um, uh, a trillion miles and a thousand years or something like that. And then, and, then, and then earlier on in the story when he's explaining what the Daleks are to, um, uh, to group, group Captain Gilmore, I think he says that they come from a, a, a distant planet in the far future. Okay. Well, I suppose, do we set the Daleks before or after um, Invasion Earth? Oh, I'm not sure. Although in the first episode, he when he's explaining what the Daleks are to Ace, he does mention that they conquer Earth in the 22nd century. Uh, so it does sort of get a mention. Yeah. Of course, it, I'm, I'm, I always try to make sense of it, make sense of it with the Peter Cushion movies, <laughs> because in Doctor Who and the Daleks, the movie, the Daleks are a very grounded kind of group. You know, they, they existed on Scarrow and then they were killed. Yeah. And then, of course, in Invasion Earth, we find out that they have space travel. Mm-hmm. And is this is this a, a group of Daleks that had left of their own accord some point um, after the Neutron Wars? <laughs> how, how does it all fit together? Oh, for God's me. sake. I thought we were just going to talk about how much we enjoy this story without having a brain ache. Um, no, no, that's fine. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. <laughs> I suppose it would... Is the Neutron War the war that took place before the events of Genesis of the Daleks? Or are you talking about the Neutron War that's explained in the very first Dalek story? Well, <laughs> somehow I'm talking about it in relation to the um, the cushion verse. So, sorry, I've, I've totally went off All right. in the wrong direction here. <laughs> the chronology what? of the Dalek stories is probably, it's probably out there somewhere. Yeah, someone would have, um, you know, sort of like tried to patch it all up and everything like that. But actually talking about, so talking about the Peter Cushing movie, isn't there a bit uh, in it where he's talking about, he's, he's talking to someone that he's uh, encountered and he's talking about how he's, come across the Daleks before but even he says I'm not too sure if it's in if that's in the future or this is their past or yeah that's when the, um, they're being rounded up on the street yeah yeah that's right um, yeah okay so even he's uncertain yeah 
we'll leave it at that. Complete yeah, so, uncertainty. So if the Doctor doesn't know, then how on earth are we supposed to know? Yeah. We, we need to talk about Remembrance. So... Yes. <laughs> there's a there's a pre-title sequence. Yeah. Which doesn't happen, if at all... It's happened in The Five Doctors, but it doesn't usually happen in Doctor Who. Um, do you think it... Do you think it was necessary? I thought it was really good. Well, just, uh, I think, yeah, they did it in The Five Doctors and I think they did it in Castrovalva. But in terms of classic Who, I think that was it, with the exception of Remembrance. Um, If it was necessary? um, I suppose not, but I do really like it. And it sort of, it sets the scene and it is really exciting. Um, And I like um, the, the, the audio clips that they use, which are speeches from... 1963 so you've got Ken- uh, John F. Kennedy uh, giving, uh, giving a, one of his famous speeches you know, which was all about uh, peace and living together and uh, it's it, actually the snippet that's used is the, the end of that speech um, I think there's an excerpt of Martin Luther King I think there's a bit of his I Have a Dream speech in there um, and there's a couple there's a couple of others I think there's the, the Duke of Edinburgh's in there and uh, Charles de Gaulle, but I don't know what he's talking about. It's in French. Um, but no, it's it's not necessary, but I think it's it sets the tone and the feel and it induces sort of like excitement watching it. But if you know those speeches and just listen to the excerpts that they use, um, because it's talking about... Because you've got, you've got uh, Kennedy's speech, which was talking about... Um, in the final analysis, our most basic common link is here that we that we all inhabit and share this planet. We all breathe the same air and that we are all mortal. And that's an excerpt from a speech when he was talking about um, peace and getting on together. And then obviously oh. you've you've got John F. Kennedy's... Um, sorry, you've got Dr. Martin Luther uh, Jr.'s speech, which is, uh, I have a dream that, you know, we will be judged on the strength of our characters and not um, through the colour of our skin. I think That's interesting when you compare it with the Daleks. So you've got the humanity against mm-hmm. this, um, the Daleks who are clearly fighting amongst themselves over yeah. over racial impurity. Yeah, well, so that's the reason. So I think um, it actually sets the, sort of like the, the theme of the story because I think Remembrance of the Daleks has a theme of racial tension woven throughout it. I mean, um, I mean, we can look into that a little bit further, but I think that's what it establishes, and I think it establishes it quite well. Mm. When I bought the DVD a long time ago, apparently, <laughs> I was surprised at how modern it looked. That first mm-hmm. scene with the Doctor and Ace on the street, you know, it's not, it's not, it's on location, and it's not grainy as hell. Mm-hmm. Um, it felt, it felt quite modern, yeah. Yeah, and I think I think it still holds up, and it it goes at a really good pace, um, and even though it's got this old fashioned structure, which is um, the twenty five minute episode structure, yeah, which even by nineteen eighty eight was a was an old form of television storytelling, um, you know, you sort of I'm not aware of that. What I'm aware of is actually you know this is a really good story. It's really interesting. It's incredibly well paced, and it goes at a good lick, and uh, and within within a very economic um, 
time frame to tell a story. Uh, you've got everything going on. So you've got the action. There's a lot of action in this story, mm. uh, which uh, which spans quite well with uh, with moments of humour, moments of drama, mo- moments of tension, um, and also some really nice quiet moments uh, between characters. And you know we have we have a brilliant scene uh, where the Doctor just takes time out in a in a cafe and just contemplate what he what he's doing. Yes, um, and you wouldn't you wouldn't get much of this in a forty five minute episode, would you? <laughs> no, no, you wouldn't. And you, you look at it like it would be deemed as filler, but it's anything but, is it? It really flashes out the story. Yeah, it does. And it, it, sort of, yeah, this is incredibly good uh, writing. Uh, ben Aronovich, uh, this, I think this may have been his first uh, television script. And I think he was only 25 at the time uh, oh. that he wrote it. So, you know, very young. Uh, and yet what he, what he does is tell an incredibly good story very very well and with that cafe scene um yeah it's uh it could be deemed as filler but as you said it's not it's it's a quite a a quiet moment where you've got the doctor um contemplating what he's doing but using you know but conversing in a metaphorical way um and I, i just really like that scene have you seen the unedited uh version of it on the dvd uh, not recently. I might have a long time ago. <laughs> um, well, it's funny because it's so as you can imagine. So it's it's a lot longer, and the doctor's a bit more on the button with it. So he's you know, the cafe um, the cafe worker that he's talking to. Um, oh, that bit's actually on now. Sorry, I've got the DVD on on mute. Oh, have you? All right. Okay. Yeah. Good time. Um, yeah. So the doctor's actually you know having this conversation and then basically uh the guy's working in the cafe goes you know essentially what are you talking about and he goes you know i'm talking about something really serious i'm talking about the possibility of saving the earth and all the rest of it um and i'm actually pleased that they edited the scene down to how it's televised uh, to how it was actually televised because i think i think it's a lot better for it mm-hmm. um so this is a, i think this is another thing which is uh the strength of the story is not only the writing and the direction of it, but also how it was edited. But yeah, I like that scene a lot. So, but going in the overall thing, so it's really quite amazing that you know you've got these episodes which are only twenty-five minutes uh, in length each, and yet what they manage to pack in to those twenty-five minutes, and yet it um, it doesn't feel forced. I mean, no. to me, um, *Remembrance of the Daleks* is classic Doctor Who at its best. It is a very good story. Mm-hmm. It's nice having. Well, well, what I was talking about earlier about these filler scenes, it's nice to have drama that doesn't have have this sinister overtone about it. You know, even if you watch the soaps, they're living the lives, but there's always something going to go wrong. <laughs> so maybe there's a, there's a lot to say about drama where it's just it's just life that goes on and there's no <laughs> nothing bad happens. You know, <laughs> you just get to see you get to see part of the story that you wouldn't ordinarily see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. As I say, going back to how that scene was uh, was televised, I love how it ends uh, because in the original, um, how it was originally shot, the scene continues a little bit mm. longer. But just uh, you know, uh, just the way that the uh, the cafe worker just goes, you know, life's like that. Life's like that. The best thing is just to get on with it, <laughs> and it just and, ends abruptly. <laughs> yeah, and it just it just it ends off. there, and I think that's brilliant. And I think that's the moment where he's basically us, the audience, in that moment. Really, it's like <laughs> life's like that. You just get on with it because that's what we do. Um, I just I just love that. 
Funny enough, um, I've forgotten the actor's name, uh, but do you recognise him from Prince of Bel-Air? Yes, uh, well, I always did, but I had myself questioning it yesterday. Is it the same guy? Yeah, yeah, it's the same guy. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'll, try, I'll try and remember his name. Hang on, wait a second. Uh, okay. Let's, let's Google it. You Google uh, it. Yeah, well, um, right, okay, so just into, so, so he must have moved over to America not long after because the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air actually started in September 1990 in terms mm-hmm. of when it started to be broadcast. But his name is um, Joseph Marcel. It's no surprise how he got the part in Fresh Prince. Oh, he's brilliant in that. They yeah. clearly, they clearly saw him in this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah so I'm just having a quick look ah oh, he was in Desmond's did you ever did you ever watch that I don't know oh it was brilliant I love Desmond's basically it was a, a sitcom uh, uh, broadcast on channel 4 in the 90s um, and it's it sort of it was set in a barber shop and it uh, I'm trying to rem- uh, trying to remember it was really funny I remember there was a character in it called Pork Pie but anyway um it was sort of like a, it looked at uh, the different generations of um, I think they were Jamaican uh, immigrants. So you had Desmond, who was the older generation, uh, like the first who had come over and had mm-hmm. set up this hairdresser's Desmonds, and you yeah. were looking at his kids and then their kids. I completely forgot he was in that. Oh. So sorry, uh, just memories. And then after Desmonds, he was in the Fresh Prince. Yeah, I miss the nineties. <laughs> Yeah, the 90s were good, weren't they? I mean, apart from the lack of Doctor Who, but other lack than that... Lack of Doctor that, Who, but other than that, there was lots of, good, lots of good stuff on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, if you can say the worst thing about a decade was that it didn't have Doctor Who in it, oh, you know, it's a shame, but, you know, you're doing pretty well. <laughs> Maybe all these other decades, we just don't notice the good stuff, because we're too, we're too knuckled down in Doctor Who. That's <laughs> <laughs> true, yeah. One thing um, I don't like about... Um, commentaries and stuff is when they when they nitpick all the mistakes and one thing I remember about the commentary on this is they mentioned the denim jeans outside Coal Hill does that stand out to you when you watch it? Oh no, oh, is, that, is that an anachronism? Just some kid walking into Coal Hill in the first scene and mm-hmm. he's wearing denim jeans Yeah, but he, should, but he shouldn't in the period oh, did, did, did we not have denim in uh, the early 60s? I don't know. Okay, hold on. I'll Google this. <laughs> right, okay. Obviously, uh, other search engines are available. If you wish, you could use Ask Jeeves. Okay, um, well, Google says <laughs> 1873. I think I think we'll let them off with this one then. Yeah, no, but I think what it is, it's that because I think when Denim was... A, I mean, I may be completely wrong, but I think Denim was originally made... Didn't Wasn't it prisoners who wore it? Oh, I don't know. And then it somehow, you know, and then eventually it, it went down, it, it sort of like moved down into, um... Ah, who knows? I really don't care, if I'm <laughs> honest. Oh, Google corrected me. When did skinny jeans start? You know what? <laughs> Put my phone away. Does Cole Hill look... I don't we didn't really get to see much of Cole Hill, but, um... I was going to say, does it look different? <laughs> but we never really got to see it much, did we? No, no, we didn't. But actually, I think uh, for, for what we for what we do see, and in fact, I think uh, all the location work I think is really good. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it, 
if you are going to nitpick, there are some instances where um, modern buildings do appear in the background a bit. You know, given what they were working with in the budget, I'm really not bothered by that. I, to me, it doesn't it doesn't particularly stand out, and it, it doesn't ruin the story. Of course, we see Cole Hill in the Capaldi era, mm-hmm. and we see it again in class, but at this time, it's been rebuilt as an academy. Yeah. Well, actually, one thing I do, which you know, it's funny when the, when the Doctor in Remembrance first enters the school, the oh, headmaster yes. thinks that he's actually there for the the job of the school caretaker, and then yeah. later on mm. with Peter Capaldi, he does become the school caretaker. There must be a connection there. There's bound to be. In fact, yeah, because uh, the headmaster's played by uh, Michael, oh God, uh, Michael Sheard, yeah. Sheard. I don't know how you pronounce his surname, unfortunately. But uh, well-respected uh, British actor, and he has appeared in loads of Doctor Who's uh, before. I think probably the most memorable is uh, his appearance in Pyramids of Mars. But he's appeared in loads. Uh, and here he, he comes and plays the headmaster. And I think... I mean, he's only in very briefly uh, in episodes one and two. But yeah. He he does have um, he does have an impact, and I do like his performance. When we're first introduced to him, you know, I think you get a, a hint of who the headmaster generally is. You know, yeah. he you know he's he's responsive. He seems caring, uh, and the sort of person you would want in charge of, of a school. You know, if some some random person just comes in and goes, "We'd like to ha- have a look around your school, if you don't mind. We think there's some evil lurking around." It was just like, I'm afraid that's out of the question. I mean, what you're saying doesn't make any sense. Um, but then, obviously, his attitude changes because, as we later find out, he's um, actually under the control of the Daleks. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, you've got that, that gentle shift and there's a little bit of a, a creepiness there. And then later on, when he's um, violent and tries to uh, attack uh, Mike t- to try and get some information, and then, because he's compromised, the Daleks kill him. I mean, I, th- I think that's quite uh, quite an emotional moment. mm and just his cry of no, um, yeah, I th- I th- that scene for me has quite an impact. Yeah, is this the first story that presents us with Dalek agents um, that are not? Um, we don't know the Dalek agent. You know, it's quite subtle. Like the Robo Men, obviously, <laughs> you can tell them apart from um, normal people. <laughs> yes, very much yeah. so. With the, with and the- of course. Yeah, and of course we had um, Dalek agents in Resurrection. Oh yes, we did. Um, they were clones, weren't they? Yes, and they were—they um, weren't under mind control. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this case, this is the first story that has Dalek agents, which is um, something that returned in the Matt Smith era. Yes, and I think. I mean, I like the idea, and I've got no objection for them returning. But I think when they have um, Dalek eye stalks coming out of their hands and, and forehead um, in the Matt Smith era, I'm, it, I'm not keen on that. If I'm honest, um, just to put, I mean, there's no particular reason why. I... It's better than a motorcycle helmet with an eye stalk. <laughs> well, that's debatable. No, um, yeah, I suppose it is, and it would make sense. It would be integrated. I mean, I've got. I mean, don't get me wrong. I've, I'm not. It's not one of those things where 
it ruins the story for me or the or the idea. And if truth be told, I've got no major reason why I shouldn't like it. It's just mm. it's one of those things where there's no real reason. I just don't particularly. I'm not particularly keen on it. Yeah. I much prefer what we have in Remembrance, where it's a bit more subtle. And yeah. it's you know you've got a, a computer chip at the the back of the ear. Yeah. Of uh, course. What? Wh- why would you have um, humans who could infiltrate places? In- why would you put an eye stalk in them? You know, of course <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're going to yeah. get recognised then. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a giveaway. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I think one of the reasons why I prefer prefer the way that it's done in Remembrance is because I think, one, I, I just prefer the subtlety to it. So it's just, a, it's just a matter of taste. But it's also, you know, it can be a bit creepy, a bit more atmospheric if it, you know, if, if it was to be brought back. Yeah. And of course, we've got the little girl. She's... Yeah. Um, Arguably, well, she is quite creepy. Yeah. Um, and she can shoot lightning from her hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's sort of like, well, if you've got a problem with the eye stalks, Liv, surely you've got a problem with this. And it's just like, I'm not, you know, I'm not consistent. I'm human. I'm like <laughs> you. Um, I don't mind that as well. But it's sort of interesting because I think the last time that we'd seen something Dalek related uh, in terms of that, that was Davros and the. Um, in the Colin Baker Dalek story. Yeah, I guess that, that does connect with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But adults, just briefly going back to that implant uh, with the Dalek agent, um, it also shows how I think you know technologically advanced the Daleks are. All what it takes is just that small computer chip, um, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The person's completely under their control. Yeah. And then Ace just punches the headmaster in the crotch. <laughs> <laughs> School of dinners, uh, yeah. And in fact, because uh, so the the way that um, the first episode ends, just because you know, because that's following the conclusion into the the second, I've just mentioned. Yeah. Uh, I mean, th- this cliffhanger is um, is incredibly iconic, and it is actually purely Doctor Who. There's no other series which could have a cl- there's I don't think there's anything on earth which could have a cliffhanger which just involves the villain of the story going up the stairs. Yeah. You know, but it's it's purely Doctor Who and it, and it works and it it's a fantastic cliffhanger and it, it's still I still find you know, I've watched the story loads of times. Um I first watched the story back in 1994 and I still think that's a great cliffhanger. Yeah. Sadly people forget it. People seem to think 2005's Dalek was the first time the Daleks levitated. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and it has sort of got mentioned a couple of times of actually how you know classic Doctor Who was the first one to get there. But I suppose it makes sense that this it wouldn't have entered the public consciousness because even though classic Doctor Who was doing really great things by this point for season 25 and 26, very few people were watching it, unfortunately. Yeah. And in the context of this scene, it was... It was kind of just done for scares for the thrill of it, like the Doctor ran up the stairs and the Dalek followed, and then it was never utilised in the story again, was it? Well, um, apart from when they, they do occasionally move around move around the stairs uh-huh. in the school. Um, oh, well, we actually do see it a bit later on with um, when, when Ace is trapped in the school. Yes, and the Dalek glides up the stairs, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like that um, there was one of the first public interviews with Chris Beckelson. Um, before the revival and uh, he, I can't remember what he was on but he's getting interviewed and she's saying um, so I hear the Daleks are finally going to conquer stairs 
and and, and Chris is like, um, oh yeah, but I can't reveal too much about that. And I'm thinking, you know, it's already happened. <laughs> <laughs> Even Nelson doesn't know. Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Obviously, the researchers were having an off day during yeah. that time. It's funny how um, the stars don't know much about the work they do. I remember listening to a commentary, I think it was on series four of the revived series. And um, yeah, sorry, it was a commentary with Catherine Tate and David Tennant. Mm-hmm. And. I'm sure she she calls the Daleks robots. Mm-hmm. And she didn't realise it was a living creature. All right. No, I mean, I haven't got a problem with that. I mean, I know what you mean. That you, uh, but at the same time, it's sort of, especially with a, with a programme like Doctor Who, um, even if you, you do have an, a new actor coming in, I'd be very surprised if they knew, you know, everything to do, everything to do with the show. I mean, there's a lot of history there. Mm. Um, you know, and... and at the end of the day, obviously, you, you want them to be interested and um, engaging with the work that they're doing. But at the end of the day, it's just, you know, it's they're probably just looking at it as an acting job. One that yeah. they find interesting. I can do a good performance. Seeing that, though, I think um, Tennant and Capaldi were, were obviously quite clued up on the show. Ah, but they're fans. Yeah, I know. Maybe that's what's needed. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Hmm. Um, so Ace orders four bacon sandwiches and one coffee. Is it all for her? I did think, blimey, that is an awful lot. <laughs> That's a like, lot of bacon like sandwiches. Maybe, maybe it's one each for her and the doctor, but are they sharing a coffee? I don't understand. Does the doctor not drink coffee? Oh, well, having said that, though, actually, because I've just remembered, she, in the, it is explained that she is incredibly hungry and she hasn't eaten in a while. Yeah. So yeah, she she probably needs to down a, a couple of bacon, you know, a few bacon sandwiches, which is yeah. fair enough. Um, actually, one thing that this is the first time because um, it has been a little while since I last watched Remembrance, but this was the first time when I was watching it, and I said, I miss cafes like that. You know, yeah. like you know you you know the the local greasy spoon. You know mm-hmm. that that type, I miss tea shops like that because you don't get them anymore, do you? Oh no. We no, should just... go. Out, we should go around town sometime and look for the worst cafe we can find and just. Well, no, I mean these were just you know sort of like small cafes and yeah, okay, <laughs> they might be sort of like dives, but uh, you could. They always <laughs> did provide fantastic cups of tea. Yeah. Uh, you know, bloody good cups of tea. Uh, yeah, but you don't get them anymore. It's all no. bloody Starbucks and Cafe Nero and Predator <laughs> Manager. Um, yeah, miss, maybe miss... that's what you need to do. Open a Harry's. <laughs> Well, that's my business idea. Yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, open a, open a Harry's, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> four bacon sandwiches and a cup of coffee for four quid. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Obviously, deep, we co- have... deep conversations about sugar. <laughs> deep conversations about sugar and how, the, and how currency works. <laughs> um, actually, because talking of which, so Remembrance of the Dogs was released, was the first uh, story of uh, season 25 so mm. it was the the silver anniversary of of doctor who and um even though the official uh silver anniversary story was silver nemesis i think this is i think a lot of people actually go well no this is sort of really the the, the proper one yeah because there's uh, there's a lot of continuity references within this story but what i really like is that they are written in such a way where they're there for you they're there 
if you notice them as a fan, that's great. And, um, but the, but if you're not a fan, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, the story will still make sense. Because actually, uh, the Daleks and what they're about and where they come from, that's explained within the story. But it's not... But it feels part of a natural conversation that the Doctor and Ace are having. Um, mm. So that's written quite well. So when you've got um, Ace being confused by uh, the imperial system of 20 shillings to the pound and 240 pennies to the pound, um, that's a nice little reversal and a reference to Susan in An Earthly Child, where she's confused because uh, you know she's thinking in terms of decimal currency as well. Yeah. The, the story itself is set in Cold Hill School at the same time as An Unearthly Child. So you've got that reference. And there's The French of... Revolution book? Is that Susan's? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I thought so. Uh, so you've got all these nice little references to the, the show's past. You've got, you know, the, the Doctor mentioning uh, events, something that took place on Planet of the Daleks. All this is going on. But it's done in such a way where... If you're a fan and you get it, great. But if you don't, it doesn't matter because uh, it doesn't get in the way of the story and you, you're still able to enjoy it. Yeah. And of course, um, in these little instances, Ace represents the viewer because if you ha- if you don't know the Daleks, you're experiencing it from her point of view. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but yes, the Doctor's explanations don't seem too forced or overbearing, do they? No, no. no. Uh, they're concise, they're to the point, they're not waffly. And yeah, it's it's all part of the the sort of the conversation. Ace would naturally be asking, "Well, what what are the Daleks?" In fact, she even she even pronounces the name incorrectly to begin with, and then the Doctor corrects her. Um, so yeah, it's it's it all that's really nicely uh, presented. One of my favourite moments in part two is when um, the um, the ATR rockets just um, arrive at the school, and the Doctor just sign, just signs for them. <laughs> just get handed over. Yeah. You know what I'm convinced by? I don't, don't know. This is just... A, I noticed this ages ago, and I'm convinced I'm right. I'm sure Sylvester McCoy, when he's signing that, he does he signs signs it as a question mark. All right. Just the way that just the way that uh, his hand moves. To me, it looks like he's doing a question mark. Maybe, yeah. Of course, he leaves his calling card, doesn't he, on the time controller? The question mark as well. Yeah, I remember as a kid, I just thought that was so cool. And actually, I would love to have got a card, uh, sort of like a replica of that card, because I just thought it looked. I just thought, for some reason, I just thought it was really cool. I liked how um, Sylvester McCoy does a very basic conjuring trick, where it appears, it seems to appear completely out of nowhere in his hand, just leaves it. And I liked the look of it, uh, you know, sort of like a black seal with the, you know, the top half of a question mark in gold and Gallifrey letters. Apparently. Um, I don't... You know Dapol? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that right? It was a, a Dapol. Anyway. I wonder. Mm. Um, De- anyway. It, it's debatable. Or is it... Yeah. It's, it's debatable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I've always pronounced it as Dapol. So... Dapol. Apparently, they, they were considering making a replica of that card. And they, they did do a prototype, but they never followed it through. And when I found that out, it was just like, oh, for God's sake. Uh, I would have bought that as a kid. Yeah. Screw the psychic paper and... The screwdriver. Well, yeah, that's just a. <laughs> Imagine if they marketed that. Someone's probably going to say, "Well, they did." It's just a blank piece of, <laughs> just a blank piece of paper in a piece of plastic. Yeah, I might be wrong, quid. but I'm sure. I'm sure you could get it. With uh, with the screwdriver. I might be wrong. 
Oh, fair enough. I mean, you're getting it with something, but if they just marketed the uh, just the psychic paper, yeah. wallet not included. <laughs> yeah, wallet. <laughs> oh, someone missed a marketing trick there. So, going looking further at the scene with the doctor being treated the way he is by the military, he's given this um, authority. We know, we know, questions asked. Let's look at the Doctor and Gilmore's relationship. From this very first scene, um, he just kind of invites him in, <laughs> lets him go and have a look in the in the junkyard. Mm-hmm. And then there's a scene in the cafe when he, the Doctor's ordering him around and he says, yeah, well, you shouldn't argue with your Doctor. <laughs> <laughs> what do you make of that, of the relationship? Do you think it's a bit odd or do you think it's quite nice? I think it's quite nice. I think I think they actually handled it quite well. So... Because the way that the Doctor, uh, he first interacts, I think it's with Rachel. Yes, um, I th- uh, with Rachel. In the van, yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, he's just quickly, you know, seemingly on the ball and aware of what's going on. And he and she's clearly impressed that, it's like, oh, well, he clearly has some scientific knowledge. Uh, this guy's on the ball. Um so she's she's aware of his intelligence and how he can be useful. So then, when they do encounter uh, Gilmore, because doesn't doesn't he effectively ask, "Is he with you?" Uh, right. Asking, okay. ask, asking Rachel, and she goes, "Well, yeah." I guess right. that w- that would have assured him because it's easy to forget that, of course, Gilmore obviously trusts Rachel's judgment. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because as it's later on revealed, you know, he drafted her specifically in to be the scientific advisor for, for, for all this. Yeah. Um, of course, I, the, the story could have spent way too much time dealing with a trust issue, couldn't it? Yeah, it could have. And I mean, in fact, that's one of the reasons why in the new series they got the uh, the psychic paper. So they didn't have to deal with this sort of thing. But actually, I think here it's handled quite well. You know, there's that, that quick interaction between the Doctor and Rachel, which quickly establishes their relationship. Uh, Gilmore trusts Rachel and so brings the Doctor on board, but doesn't entirely trust him. In fact, none of them do because the Doctor is being guarded, but they simply... I mean, they are presented with a situation that they do not understand, but they are aware that the Doctor does. Yes, and Gilmore's quite sceptical until he sees the shuttle from the school window. Yeah, yeah, that's true. In fact, that's when the Doctor basically says, are you willing to cooperate with me now? Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So I think actually the the way that that relationship um, is established and continues throughout the story, I think is uh, I think it's handled quite well. Mm-hmm. And the Doctor zip wires down in that scene. Um, mm-hmm. Have you considered doing that before? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I would love to do that. Yeah. One thing I don't get is we don't see it on screen, but the rest of the gang must have zip wired down, <laughs> but we just didn't get to see that. No, that's a shame. But yeah, that, uh, yeah, I think they would have done. Yeah. Where does the Doctor know Rachel from? Because he jumps in the van and he says, oh, I, I'm sure I know you, or something like that. Oh, yeah, she says her name. Dr. Rachel Johnson, does she say her name? Anyway, that's whatever. right, yeah. Yeah. Um, and he goes, oh, how would you do? Uh, I'm sure I've heard of you. Mm. Yeah, maybe she's a well-respected... Uh, yeah. yeah. When I first ever seen this story, I thought she must be some historical figure that I wasn't aware of. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, I can get that. Uh, that makes sense. But yeah, I think, I, yeah, I think we just must be by, rep, rep, by reputation. Yeah. Yeah. 
Or it could be argued... I mean, I, I, I don't take this. I, th- I think it is probably the reputation thing, but I suppose it could be argued that the Doctor is... Um, he's time-sensitive. Yeah, maybe he's um, relating to the fact that he knows her from the future. No? <laughs> uh, possibly. No, no, I wasn't going to say that. Well, that, okay, that's a, that's another possibility. The third possibility could be that he's actually manipulating the situation and is just going, oh, I'm sure uh, I've heard of okay. you. You know, um, you know, trying to get in with that ego or something like that. But, but I, th- I think... I think it's more the reputational thing, and it is genuine. Is this story the first mention of polycarbide? Uh, probably. Do you, what do you prefer, dalekanium um, or polycarbide? I think polycarbide. Dalekanium just sounds a bit too, <laughs> a bit too on the nose. I don't know. <laughs> I guess so. Was that um, did Terry Nation write dalekanium? Was that was. Was that first heard in one it of his stories? It was first heard in the second serial, yeah, in Invasion Earth. Yeah, I was going to say it. It sounds because don't get me wrong. I think um, I think Terry Nation was a very good writer, but fun. Uh, so my view, my view of him in terms of Doctor Who, right? I think he's the most important writer for Doctor Who because he created the Daleks, and that's what cemented the show's yeah. success. But I also think that. Even though he's the most important, I don't think he's one of the best. I think where Terry Nation was a lot better as a writer was with writing like Survivors and Blake Seven, because I think with in terms of the Daleks, I actually think the Dalek the Daleks are much better when other writers write for them, because I think they cotton on to the potential of the Daleks more than Terry Nation did, and sometimes his writing for Doctor Who. I mean, it was fine. I mean, don't get me. I mean, he wrote like I mean, he wrote Genesis of the Daleks, which is a cracking good story. But he did sort of have to be pushed in that direction. Do you think he got you got bogged down in um, exploring the nature of the Daleks rather than their potential? Well, I think with uh, with Terry. Well, actually, well, what happened? Because apparently, what happened was that um, he wrote a Dalek. He wrote a, a plot synopsis or a story, or whatever, and presented it to uh, Barry Letts, who was then the producer, uh, and Terence Dix, who was the script editor. And they both said, it's a good story, uh, Terry, but you've sold it to us before. Mm -hmm. And they sort of broke it down and they went, you know, you've told, you know. And then apparently Terry Nation went, oh my God, you're right. And apparently it was, I think it was Barry Letts who actually said, why don't you do Genesis of the Daleks? Yeah. And tell tell us that story. So then he went away and did that story. Um, but anyway, so it was getting to the point. So I think actually in terms of I think in terms of Doctor Who, he wrote he wrote good stories, don't get me wrong. But I think he simply used the Daleks as a cipher to tell you know, stories that he, themes that he found interesting. Uh, you know, themes of, you know, viruses and things like that. And you know, because we see that with, with series like Survival, but he's able to just you know, explore those, explore those, and you know, do really, really good things. So I think he uses more. I think he uses the dogs more as a cipher, more than anything else. But also, he he does come up with quite, I think, quite funny terms. And I think Dalekanium is one of them. Yeah, it's a bit, <laughs> it's a bit too obvious. But you know, but I suppose it you know, does what it says on the tin. Yeah. I suppose. William, that Ratcliffe is working for the renegade Daleks and I think it's obvious that we're meant to think Davros is sat in that chair yes Um, it's also curious that Ratcliffe didn't realise there was a girl in the chair 
because you know he's kind of sat, he's kind of stood opposite, um, next to the chair as he comes in the room. It's a bit strange. Um, mm-hmm. The stuff with, is it Mike? Yeah, yeah. Um, there was a lot of hints there, which I quite liked. He's such a likable character, and it's hard to believe he'd have these motives. Um, mm-hmm. Even at the point where he's discovered, he still turns on them, you know? So he's an interesting character. You can say there's a lot of mystery, but then all along we kind of knew he was working with Ratcliffe, didn't we? Yeah, but again, I sort of, I think, uh, I like the way that that is revealed. So we are introduced to Mike originally uh, as, as a sergeant fighting for who are clearly supposed to be, you know, these are the, the Doctor's associates in the story and uh, on the right side because they're fighting the Daleks. But yeah, uh, and he introduces Ratcliffe to uh, to Gilmore. Uh, so he's the one that brings him in, although Mike is working for, yeah. for Ratcliffe. Um, uh, you know, so, so it all seems to be fine. But yes, I, again, I like the way that that is revealed. And it's, you know, you've got this group called, you know, he, he just mentions this group, the association and how they're just friends. But then we find out a bit more about them and, and Ratcliffe... Uh, talks about how Britain had fought on the wrong side in the last war, meaning the yeah. Second World War. Um, so clearly the association is uh, fascist, so I think actually he probably would have been a brown, a brown shirt and would have been with uh, uh, Mosley uh, by the sounds of it. So you can piece that together. But yeah, this goes back to what we were saying at the very beginning about how Remembrance of the Daleks is really about sort of like racism. So we have... You know, the two antagonistic Dalek forces fighting each other because, as Ace put it, the way that the other sees it is that they're not pure in their Are they incidentally uh, black and white? Or do you think there was some intention there? Oh, never thought of that. I think, that, yeah, I suppose you, you could look at it in, in that sense, but I, I, I don't think that's deliberate. I think they're just using the established colour scheme from previous Dalek yeah. stories. Um, because the. The previous story, with, with uh, the previous Dalek story, which had Colin Baker as the Doctor, which was is that revelation. Is that revelation of course, that did did um, yeah. They weren't quite as gold. They didn't have the same um, weaponry, but yeah, they were. Um, they were. But yes, very close to these uh, ones, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, so that introduced white and gold Daleks, and it, it, that did introduce that there were two Dalek forces, but it wasn't. Uh, it wasn't uh, thematically um, linked with no. racism, whereas that's what they do in this story. So th- that's a, that's an interesting point to make, but I don't think it, I don't think no. that's deliberate. But I think you, but yes, I could see how um, that could be interpreted. So you've got that. You've got fascist group, the association. You've got the uh, the boarding house with the uh, the creepy sign, no coloureds. Yeah, and it Ace reacts to that, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah, she does, uh, and I think, yeah, I think that's handled quite well. So you've got the Daleks, who have all, you know, which go, I mean, it's there in their very first Dalek story, which is a dislike for the unlike. The Daleks have always been fascist; they've always been racist. Uh, so there's that. Then you've got the Daleks fighting against each other in relation to that. So we've also got the, the humans fighting uh, with, with each other as well. Yeah, so you've got, but again, it's really well, uh, really well presented because you've got the fascist group, the association, 
So that's uh, that's an outside uh, you know, uh, extreme group. But then with the no coloured side, you've actually got you know you got the the racism that was just socially accepted at the time. Yeah. So it's sort of how racism like is at this point permeating everything, and then the way that it was intru- you know going back to how the story opened up with that pre-title sequence, marking how. 1963 was arguably uh, marking some sort of change mm. uh, with regards to race relations and um, the civil rights movement in America and so on. You've even got the Doctor in this story making... I, th- I mean, I think it's presented more humorously with the Doctor, but he makes some comments throughout about humans. You know, typical humans. You can always count on them to mess things up and things like yeah. that. And the fact he commits genocide at the end of the story. Not only does he commit genocide at the end, it, I think it's quite apparent that it was his intention all along. Yes. Hmm. It's a curious thing. So he came here not knowing there was two factions, but he was going to come here, give the Daleks the hand, and let yeah. them commit genocide. So he didn't directly do it. He give them the means mm-hmm. to do it, just like he, just like yeah. he gave Harry the means to kill the Santaran, like we were talking about the, the other week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, I think, I think it's interesting in of itself, but also given the fact that um, with the with the new series and how that brought us the Time War. Mm-hmm. Which I think was a brilliant idea because, you know, we have these Dalek stories in the classic series, which which were great. But actually, the Time War 1, I think it, it brought a sense of mystery back to, uh, to the Doctor, which was needed when the show was coming back. So I think that was the main reason why they established that. But I actually think I really... Uh, it, it also added something really, really interesting to classic um, Dalek stories. Especially when the Time Lords are brought in. So, and I think, I mean, this makes sense, but I think Russell T. Davis has said that when the Time Lords get the Doctor to go back in time to uh, destroy the Daleks in Genesis, yes. that was the beginning of the Time War. Mm-hmm. In terms of remembrance, I think it's interesting that the Doctor says that the Daleks, ruthless though they are, even they wouldn't contemplate uh, mucking up the timeline. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of interesting that actually the, it seems to be that the, the Time War was actually instigated by the by the Time Lords rather than the other way around. And of course we've got the final moments. Did they do good here? Mm-hmm. And time will tell. Uh, do you think time did tell? Do you think um, inadvertently could this be a precursor to the Time War? I think so. I mean, the, one, the fact that... I mean, again, if you just take the story in of itself and just the classic series, the fact that Ace has to ask that question, you could say he's telling. Um, because she's unsure. And even the Doctor in his response goes, I'm, I'm, I'm not too sure either. Mm. But yeah, but then taking the uh, new series into account with, with the Time War, um, you can actually know he, he went too far. Um, yeah. You know, he he committed uh, mass genocide. He destroyed an entire planet, and that's not even taken into account if the Thals were on Scara or not. Right. Okay. And there's no reason to think there wouldn't be. Yeah. So did I mean was there collateral damage? 
did he did he also commit genocide to a completely innocent race as well? Wow. Okay. We do know the Thals also um, thrived and left Skaro mm-hmm. as well, didn't they? Yeah. So there's that possibility that in the far future, that when Skaro was destroyed, they weren't there. It could have been reclaimed by the Daleks at this point. Yeah. And this kind of echoes the scene in the cafe when the Doctor's talking about um, the heavier the decision, the larger the waves, the more uncertain the consequences. Yes, yeah. So the existence of the Hand of Omega um, brings you back to the first Doctor. Mm -hmm. And it adds more mystery to why did he leave and why did he have it? Uh, Which, at this point, uh, Andrew Cartmel was uh, the script editor. Uh, He'd been a script editor for the previous season as well, but some of the stories had already been in place and he felt that, from what I understand, uh, he wasn't fully in control of what he wanted to do until this season. Mm. Uh, And his idea, along with what Sylvester McCoy wanted to do with the character at this point, was um, he wanted to bring more mystery to the Doctor because Cartmel had thought that... um, the Doctor had become a patsy in his own show that he was just responding to events around him, that he wasn't in control. So he wanted to, one, have the Doctor more in control, but bring back that mystery. Mm-hmm. And this is uh, the first story which brings that in, because there's when the Doctor, again, is explaining the situation to Ace about um, the Hand of Omega, is it a genuine mystery? Uh, slip of the tongue or has he revealed something when he you know when he's talking about the Hanavomia and he says you know didn't we have problem with a prototype she goes we and he goes they um was that a slip of the tongue or was he you know was he involved with um the, uh, the creation of the Hanavomia and so on I mean a lot of people I mean a lot mm. of Doctor Who fans are aware of this thing called the Cartmel Master Plan um is this with the other yes yeah. So the idea was the Doctor was was the other working along with um, Rassilon and Omega. Is is the first Doctor kind of a reincarnation of the other? Is that is that the idea? I think that's the idea. I mean, I haven't read Lung Barrow myself, but from what I understand, yes, that's that's the idea, and it was sort of formed this trinity of um, Rassilon and Omega. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But, I mean, we don't see that in the TV series, and I think it's up to you whether you, you like that idea or not. But that was, apparently, that was the sort of the direction that they were going to, to go in. Mm. Um, but what it does do, it um, it does establish more, more of a mystery. And, in fact, the, the famous uh, scene edited out of this story is a bit with um, when the Doctor's confronting Davros. And he, you know, uh, he says, you know, oh, I'm far more than just another Time Lord. Okay, um, but that was edited out of yeah. of the story, um, so that wasn't transmitted. But yeah. um, I think there's enough in the story to establish that you know, one, the Doctor's being manipulative. You know, he is you know he is being a bit mysterious, and maybe there's more to him than meets the eye. Yeah, there's two things about this story as well. Um, first is the BBC ident, which um, announces the broadcast of Doctor Who. I think it's something that's worth acknowledging. There's also another scene where the Doctor talks to the camera in a cliffhanger. Oh, the cliffhanger to episode three, yeah. Yes. So these are two kind of um, fourth wall breaks. Yeah. Almost. Um, uh-huh. 
Do you think they ruin the story in any way? No, I don't. Uh, but it's sort of funny with that. I'm not particularly... I mean, it, it, it depends on... Because when you when you take storytelling, you try to take storytelling seriously. Mm-hmm. And when it tries to be a bit meta and refers mm-hmm. to itself as fiction, that yeah. can kind of pull you out of it. And it's a bit it's a bit annoying when you're investing your imagination in the story you're trying to be. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, usually I'm not. I'm not a fan of sort of like these postmodern breaking the fourth wall winks to the audience. But having said that, though, it really depends on the story. If it's structured. And the theme is that sort of thing. It can work. Um, but I remember way back when I was reading some of the Virgin New Adventures, there's a one called Conundrum. And that is set in the world of fiction. Uh-huh. And there's a bit where I think it's Ace, or maybe Benny, I can't quite remember. But uh, there's a bit where the, uh, she's in the TARDIS library. She's being threatened. And she glances across some of the books on the shelf. And some of the titles are part of the previous Virgin New Adventures. And I really <laughs> didn't like that because it, I mean, it, it took me out of the story mm. uh, a bit too much. And I know it's sort of just set in the land of fiction and everything like that, but then it's sort of pointing out, yeah, I didn't particularly like that. But uh, this, I thought it was fine um, because I remember when I first watched this as a kid, I did I was probably probably a stupid kid then. I didn't cotton on to the uh, the, the the television thing of uh, it's now a quarter past five and now we continue the new exciting adventures of Doc. It could be anything. <laughs> it could be anything. Yeah. Uh, Doctor in the house. Um, could be anything. Do- but it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't until much later on that I went. Oh, that's a uh, yeah. But it's fine. Uh, it, it's not too intrusive. But there is a there is a few of those things. In fact, there's again, I I, I think it's one of those things. That it's it, it's only there if if you if it's been pointed out to you. So th- there's a bit where um, Alison and Rachel are uh, walking out the cafe, and uh, I think it's Alison goes, oh, "I wish Bernard was here." And then Rachel says, oh, uh, the Rocket Group has got its own problems," and that's a reference to Quatermass. Right. Okay. Uh, which actually, <laughs> I think it's quite nice. Yeah. Um, that's sort of you know, that's there if if you notice it or it's been pointed out to you. Uh, and there's a part of me that likes the fact that Quatermass is now part of the Doctor Who universe, yeah. although you know, not in a serious way. I don't watch Quatermass and think about Doctor Who. I just enjoy it. Um, yeah, and there's that that cliffhanger at episode three, which you mentioned, where he looks directly at the camera and goes, "I think I may have miscalculated." But then again, we all talk to ourselves, don't we? Yeah, you know, exactly. It wasn't necessarily looking at the camera. No. Um, I mean, I didn't mind it. I, th- I think it was because it was... It, uh, it's just these little things and it doesn't dominate the story too much. Yeah. Um, I know Capaldi has spoke to the audience before, hasn't he? But that was um, kind of interlinked as a narration, wasn't it, when he's on board the TARDIS? Oh, is that in listen? Yes. So you could interpret that that he's um he's talking to himself, or you could you could say that's not definitively part of the story, but as a narration, you know, he's kind of um speaking to us. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. The first Doctor breaks the fourth wall, doesn't he? Does he? I'm sure he does. 
Oh, is that in the Daleks Master Plan? The Christmas, uh, oh, the Christmas it, yes. episode. Yes. Uh, yeah, where he. A lot of people have said that this is something that William Hartnell uh, did, but that's nonsense. It was. It was actually scripted. Uh, yeah, because it was a Christmas uh, episode. It's barking mad. Um, but it was a Christmas episode, and yeah, at the end of it, he. You know, they're wishing everyone a Merry Christmas and then he turns and raises a glass to the audience and goes, and incidentally, a Merry Christmas to you, you all at home. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a bit of a funny one. But the... Because that episode was um, deliberately throwaway because it was broadcast in Britain on Christmas Day. So they did that. But it was done in a way that when it was being sold elsewhere... Mm-hmm. Um, the episode could be removed. Oh, I got you. Okay. Because it it has no it has no bearing on the overall story. Okay. So best cliffhangers. There's a few a few to choose from. We've got the Dalek hovering up the stairs. Yeah. We've got Ace outrunning the Daleks. Mm-hmm. We've got the Doctor's fourth wall break, <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. is actually the the shuttle arriving. Mm-hmm. Which is your favourite? Uh, oh, that's tricky because I actually think they're all really good, uh, and they do provide that hook to you wanting to go straight into the next episode. Um, I think the cliffhanger to the first episode is rightly regarded as a classic because it's just great, and uh, I love how it's shot, how it looks, the fact that the last shot is of of the Doctor looking absolutely petrified from the vision of the Dalek. Yeah. Um, so that's kind so, of iconic. Yeah. <laughs> Was that a yeah. pun? Um, but I think my favourite's probably episode two with with Ace. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, same here. The whole um, the whole music as well brings uh, yeah brings a lot of atmosphere. Because <laughs> uh, yeah. I think we mentioned it in our uh, in our last uh, podcast when we were looking at the legacy of time because. You were saying how it was brilliant to listen, hear the uh, the McCoy theme tune, yeah, uh, which was uh, adapted by Kef McCulloch. And he, I mean, we both love that version of, of the theme tune. And Kef McCulloch unfortunately comes in for a lot of flack for uh, the incidental music he provided for uh, for Doctor Who, um, which I think is a shame because I actually think he does a really good job. And I love the soundtrack to Remembrance of the Daleks. Um, yeah, uh, it's hard to yeah. follow. Some of it seems spot on, but mm-hmm. parts of it you could um, relate to it. The fact that it's in the eighties, that it was made in the eighties, so it's, it's the soundtrack kind of um, works. Yes, it works. I mean, yes, it it is uh, it is very eighties, uh, but uh, I haven't got a problem with that. It, um... I don't think you necessarily need uh, a music score which reflects the period of the story that it is set. Um, I, I, I quite like some of the music that uh, that's used. They actually use uh, the Beatles in, in the cafe scene, which is quite nice. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I think Kev McCulloch does provide an absolutely uh, brilliant music score. It is it is exciting uh, when it needs to be, especially um, in this cliffhanger for episode two. It really uh, builds up very nicely. Yeah, I think I think um, my favourite music score is the bit when um, 
the doctors come across the time manipulator of the Daleks and he, he, he temporarily busts it. And then the, the Dalek and the girl come back along with Ratcliffe and they run out to escape. There's this great exciting music score. I think that's probably my favourite. Is, uh, is this the same music um, from the part where the, the Hand of Umga is going to Skara? Is it that kind of action music? Yes, I think it is, yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's... It, so, so it, he does that really well, but there are moments where it is a uh, which it is a bit more atmospheric and, uh, and so on, and that really works. I think yeah, Kevin McCulloch does a, a, a great music score for the story. I know you mentioned the the music in the cafe. There's a moment um, in the B and B. Oh, sorry. Um, who is this? Um, does Mike live there? Oh, that's a good. Uh, that's a good question. Um, no, I'm doesn't just... he live there? Doesn't it, isn't it his mother who runs it? Yeah, because they were, weren't they both um, Smith or something? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Um, anyway, there's a cool moment when Ace turns the telly on. Of course, she doesn't know it needs to warm up a bit. <laughs> and then um, <laughs> yeah. a moment later, she hears music and she just like kind of picks the radio up, thinking, um, "Is it coming from that?" <laughs> yeah. Because I remember um, my grandma's telly you used to have to turn it turn it on and wait a minute or two. Um, I used to have these um, portable black and white tellies. I had one in my bedroom, and you'd turn it on and have to wait for it to kind of warm up a bit. And then you had um, you had to find the right frequency for the channel. So I used to get um, the number stickers out of cassette boxes, and then find the channel and stick stick it um, a sticker on the television. <laughs> so I need the frequency for each channel. All right, okay. <laughs> I love old tellies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they've made a bloody ton as well. Yeah. <laughs> no one was going to be nicking those, unlike today. Yeah. But yeah. The resolution to um, that cliffhanger with Ace, in, so we, we go into the start of part three, and the doctor comes in with his, um, his big rainbow glitter blaster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, those great effects. So let's, hope, gonna... let's hope they don't get replaced with new CGI. No, no, hopefully not. But yeah, he uh, he basically destroys the Daleks with a rainbow. Um, yeah, no, it, it works. It's sort of yeah. <laughs> they should have marketed that. Oh yeah, that would have been good. Yeah, just like shoots glitter on people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of explosions. There is a lot. Yeah, there's a lot. Uh, one of the things that I quite like in the in the first episode with the, with the reveal of um, the first Dalek. I know it's just a nice little touch because they, they've launched uh, a rocket to where the uh, the Dalek was and explodes, but of course the Dalek isn't destroyed. But uh, they have flames at the, the, the bottom of the Dalek. Ah, right, okay. Yeah. Which I think is a nice touch. Yeah. But yeah, there's there's a lot of, there's a lot of explosions and they're bloody big ones. They don't shy away from much visually in this story. You know, nothing's, nothing is seen off screen. Mm-hmm. Even the, the, the Dalek shuttlecraft, when it lands... It's this full-scale thing. Yeah. Well, when... Uh, I think it was on the documentary on the uh, special edition of Remembrance, where they're doing the making of, uh, Ben Aronovich, who wrote the story, had said that uh, John Nathan Turner, who was the producer, had actually said to him, I think this is the story that we're going to be spending the most money on. And Ben had apparently sort of had the reaction of going... Well, I thought you would have done that anyway. Not realizing, not realizing <laughs> the sort of um, the budget, the full budgetary constraints of Doctor Who. Yeah. And I think um, 
I mean, I know that John Nathan Turner comes in for a lot of flack uh, for how he produced Doctor Who. Uh, some of it's warranted. I don't think a lot of it is. Um, there tends to be this criticism that he didn't actually understand. He didn't actually understand what made it a good story. But I think the fact that he looked at season twenty-five scripts and and realised that actually he he had a cracking good one with Remembrance of the Daleks. Yeah. And realised that right, in order to effectively tell this story better, you know, we we put as much support behind it as possible. Because even though uh, you've got the Happiness Patrol, which is my favourite story from this season, uh, and you've got the Great Show in the Galaxy, which is another uh, fan favourite, which is which is brilliant. But um, I think John Nathan Turner recognised. You know what he because he, he had to you know he had a very limited um amount of money to spend and he went right this is the one that needs it it needs you know the special effects team to to really sell the story because it's a cracking good story it's a really good script but if it lacked in any way i don't think it would be regarded as the classic that it is no i think we owe John Nathan Turner uh, uh, a lot for that. I mean, Andrew Morgan, who's the director, does a great job with the direction, but again, it it all comes down to the budget. A lot of the camera work, where the camera pans along mm-hmm. uh, quite well. Yeah. You know, uh, the the directing is, is um, obviously worked quite well with the story. It's not just the, the props mm-hmm. and the locations and everything. It all works pretty well. Um, not speaking bad about season 26 because um, of course that's quite brilliant I would have been happy if Remembrance of the Dogs had been the final story of the classic era oh I see what you mean yeah because I think season 26 is a f- I love season 26 and I yeah. think that was a good uh, and I do love good... su- I, do, I do love survival yeah but I love this more ah right okay uh, no, but I can I can see where you're coming from because it, it would because at the end of the day you're talking about the show would have ended on a like on this huge high. It would have went full circle, wouldn't it? You know, it all ends up back at Totters Lane, mm-hmm. um, and harkening back to all these um, these fan favorite moments. It doesn't have to be um, it doesn't have to be a, a quick celebration here and there. It can be. It should be um, part of the. The DNA of the show, you know, can be it can, it can end on that note as well. Mm-hmm. I think I know what I mean. <laughs> we get to see some Dalek interiors. We get to see the Imperial Dalek transmatting down, mm-hmm. and we kind of see a silhouette of the Dalek inside, almost, or the mm-hmm. work the workings of it at least. And we will also see a Dalek grab McCoy by the neck. Yeah, but then also learn that the Imperial Daleks are more advanced than um, the normal blobby ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we do see a glimpse of the Dalek, but it's not the Daleks that we've known so far. Mm-hmm. Really, yeah. Because of course we don't see much of the Daleks, do we? Uh, in classic Doctor Who. No, no, we don't. Now and again, we'll, we'll see some sort of... Uh, Possibly e- mutant. E- Evil of the Daleks? I think the, Evil of the, the Daleks. The first appearance? Um, seen them yeah. In in their first story, we, we just see a hand uh, emerge. 
I do love the hand in the Peter Cushion movie, this kind of gremlin hand. Yes, I really like that as well. I think it's very effective. I, I, I really like that one as well. Um, it really um, puts the fear in your imagination, you know, what, what the hell is it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, in the Capaldi area, we've got um, the Ice Warrior story, Cold War. Mm-hmm. And we finally see the Ice Warrior at the end. Mm-hmm. I feel like it would have been good if we'd just seen people's reactions to that. Yes, I think so as well. I think that could have um, been more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that because I, I like I, I like Cold War more more as a story than the way that it's fully revealed, mm-hmm. uh, re, uh, fully realized rather. Yeah, uh, I think that would have been. I think that that could have been a really creepy, claustrophobic, atmospheric story, and it doesn't quite come across that way, which I think is a shame. Don't get me wrong, I like it, uh, but I, I would like to go back and and watch it again. But I think it's one of those stories where I feel like it, if certain uh, if certain other ch- choices were made, I think it could have been a lot better. Um, and that's one of them. Yes, I think I would have much yeah. preferred uh, the Ice Warrior to be left more to our imaginations. Yeah, there's a story you mentioned earlier. I think it was Listen. Mm-hmm. Is that the one where, um, of course, the they go back to see Danny Pink as a kid, yeah? Yeah. Supposedly some kid comes in the room and is stood behind them and is um, oh, on the bed under the blanket. Mm-hmm. And that is terrifying, isn't it? Because you, oh, yeah. you still don't know. Yeah, that, that, that was a fantastic scene, yeah. That's an example of how to do it properly. But yeah, going back, going back to it, I don't think we saw... Yes, I think Evil of the Daleks we see inside. Maybe Planet of the Daleks, but because... We, we, we can't see it. I'm not entirely sure. You've got the five doctors at the beginning. Yes. Oh, we do see a, da- uh, a bit of a Dalek in Resurrection, doesn't it? Attack someone in the warehouse. Oh, yes. You're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Just a blobby thing, though. It was, yeah, but um, I, think that, I think that worked quite well because they got the organic nature of it really good. And the fact that that sort of the fact that a Dalek just as a blob was dangerous, mm. you know, and there's that whole sense of the 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 uh, the soldier that attacked it may have poisoned his system, yeah, and he does go a bit sort of weird, so th- that was quite atmospheric and creepy, yeah. Of course, the new era um, showed with the inside straight away, mm-hmm. and you know it was super effective, wasn't it? That story, yeah, but um, it also probably could have worked if they just kept the mystery going for a while longer and had a had a reveal later later on down the line yeah i think i'm i think i'm one of those people where i prefer it to be more of a mystery unless um yeah i thought yeah i think yeah it was quite a brave thing wasn't it introducing people to the daleks but making you feel empathy for it Mm -hmm. rather than initially making you terrified of them yeah i think yeah because i think that was a because you saw how ruthless and dangerous they were, but also at the same time that um, there could be room to empathise with it as yeah. well. And yeah, it's like um, it's like Terminator One was terrifying, and then Terminator Two um, introduces this to this idea idea that can a Terminator make you cry or feel or feel feel for it? And it's yeah. almost like um, Russell T Davis give the audience Terminator Two rather than One, you know. First, <laughs> yeah, 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 but it was effective. 
Which is your favourite Dalek in this story? In which colour? Oh, um, the black and silver. Yeah, same here. The grey ones, um, they're cool, but I'm not sure about the, you know the matte finish they've got. I like the I like the clean glossy black. Yeah, I know. What you, yeah, I know what you mean. I think it it works in this story in the sense that it it's a it shows that the the black silver Dalek is the one in charge. Yeah, because he's the one who looks nicer. But I just think it's a great look. Yeah, and it's just a shame we didn't have more <laughs> more sort of black and silver Daleks. Mm-hmm. Just a small point because I realised that you know when um when they're in the cafe, it's like it's the whole lot of them. Yeah, and um. Ace goes and joins Mike because he's with a couple of his uh, soldier friends. Mm-hmm. And they're called John and Paul. All right. <laughs> Is that a Beatles reference? Maybe. Because I thought of all the names to pick. Yeah. And they've got a big jukebox in there, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe a biblical biblical reference. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed, it could be, yeah. <laughs> Isn't that the joke in uh, Sister Act? I've forgotten which one, if it's one or two, but uh, it's that thing of, you know, uh, name the four disciples. I think it's the first one. And she goes, you know, John, Paul, yes, George and Ringo. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Going back to when you were talking about the budget of this story, mm-hmm. how they don't shy away from anything visually. Mm-hmm. It's good to imagine what could have, what could older stories have been like if they were given this treatment. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's funny to sort of, um, I think there's a lot of stories in the 70s which hold up really well in terms of, the, you know, uh, the production values. Yeah. But now and again, uh, certainly when Graham Williams was the producer, so the late 70s, um, you know, there, there was hyperinflation, the budget was cut, and it does start to show. I mean, particularly like with stories like The Invisible Enemy, mm. um my memories of that, that that looks particularly cheap. But actually, there's some stories within the, in that series, like Horror of Fang Rock, which yes. still looks good. But yeah, I think you know, I think what becomes apparent with um, from the late 70s onwards is that there has to be a decision made about, you know, which stories will be more... You, you, you can't equally spread it, uh, and some stories will naturally have much more resource put behind them, and you've got to make that decision as a producer of which one it'll which one it'll be. Yeah, I mean that that'll always be a decision that a producer has to make anyway, and how the series is structured and how you can make cost saving measures in certain stories. But I think it becomes much more of a driving force in how the show is produced than perhaps it was originally, because there are still there are stories in the Pertwee era and the Hinchcliffe-produced Baker era, which even today look really bloody good. Yeah. Um, and then in this... And when you compare them to some stories that were produced, late, you know, certainly in the late 70s, it, uh, it starts to look a bit cheap. And again, I think one of the things... I think on the whole... I think the 80s looks a lot more expensive than perhaps they had a budget for. And I think we, we owe John Nathan Turner a lot for that. Now and again, I mean, you get stories like Time Flight, which, um, which I mean, comes in for a, for a lot of kicking. But it does look cheap. Yes. And, you know, and you can tell that that is a studio-bound show. Um, 
but then when you compare it to you know the story before it, Earthshock, mm. I mean you know that that uh, that looks really good even yeah. today. Um, you're more familiar with um, probably season twenty four than I am. Um, mm-hmm. How would you say visually Remembrance of the Dogs compares with the previous season, season twenty four, and Trial of a Time Lord? Was the was there instantly a, a better visual quality after Trial of a Time Lord, or was season twenty four more of a transition? Oh, that's a good question. I think um, I think it was more of a transition. I mean, when I remember, like, I've got a massive soft spot for Time and the Rani, mm. and. I know a lot of people don't like it because of the story itself, but I've always thought that the production values of, of that story are quite good. Uh, and I've always thought that it has a good look to it. Having said that, though, uh, once uh, I, I'd had a, I was watching Time and the Rani and a friend came over. He was not a Doctor Who fan. And um, we were going out, but he need, you know just popped in for, uh, for 10 minutes and he was watching a bit of time in the Rani, and what he said was, "God, this looks cheap," <laughs> um, which I'd never, you know, from from my perspective, it didn't. No. Uh, but to him, it, it <laughs> to him it was just offensive to the eyes. Um, so that's that's interesting. What do you think? Um, of course, Doctor Who has a lot of stigma about being a well, argue, debatably enough, but cheap-looking TV show. <laughs> mm. um, what do you think it is that draws people's attention? Do you think it's it's the um, it's the sets, or the or the, do you think it's the dialogue or the acting? Well, it's really interesting with the um, the season ten Blu-ray box set that came out uh, fairly recently. There's a documentary which looks at. Um, the John Pertwee series as a whole. And uh, Mark Gatiss and Stephen Moffat are on it, and they're being interviewed. And obviously they're talking about the Pertwee era. Yeah. And I think they both, uh, Moffat and Gatiss, they make a really good point, which was that actually, if you look at television as a whole in the 60s and the 70s, it looks awful. Mm-hmm. And that was just because the way that television was produced then as a whole. And they, they, they talk about how um, shows that were regarded as prestigious uh, looked awful. And, you know, and Stephen Moffat actually made this point as well, going like, look, they were, you know, they were big Doctor Who fans and they were known for being Doctor Who fans. And... There was nothing worse than when you as a kid during that time watched Doctor Who and you went, oh, God, it looks it looks bad because you knew that the Monday going back into school, you would be mocked for liking that cheap, ridiculously looking show. Mm -hmm. So what he what he was saying was that actually this whole thing of, um, you know, we uh, it looked good for the time because that's what people were expecting. He went, no, that's nonsense. People knew that when they looked at something and it looked bad, it looked bad. It was as simple as that. Mm. Uh, and I actually think they, they make a good point, which tends to get forgotten as... Um, 
The way that television produced then is obviously different to now. It had a lot less money, yeah. although the money they had went a, went a lot further than perhaps it did now. Um, but I think it, it's sort of... Um, I think it's a bit of a funny one. I think you've... When you're watching old television like this, you've got to watch it on the understanding of when it was originally broadcast and just enjoy it on that side of things. But I do think it generally does shift around. When I said that there are stories in classic Doctor Who which I still think genuinely look good to this day, I mean that. I think there are classic Doctor Who stories which I still think look good. But of course, going back to that example of Time of the Rani, which I think looks okay... You know, someone who's not a fan with modern eyes watches it and goes, no, that looks awful. I actually find that... I actually find it visually uh, distressing to look at. Yeah. There'll always be other things that have raised the bar too high, like when you look at Star Trek in 1965. And you've got these brilliant sets, they're really well lit. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously there's a notable... No, sorry, sorry. <laughs> there's a noticeable difference in production value. Mm-hmm. Which makes you think, okay, this show, um, Doctor Who, for example, isn't getting enough money, mm-hmm. you know, to be produced. So it's it's also hard when other other shows raise the bar. Mm-hmm. Mm. But I think, I mean, yeah, I suppose it varies. I mean, when I watch something like Carnival of Monsters, I think that looks great. It's not just a story that I love. I think it looks good and I'll happily watch it. Something like The Invisible Enemy, which is a Tom Baker story in 78 or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I like the story, but to me, I'm all, to me, that it looks cheap. Mm. But then having said that, there's, there's stories later on, Power, Power of Crawl, which some people go, look, that was, you know, there's, it clearly looks like a cheap show. Mm. Um to me I think it actually looks quite decent for when it was broadcast Yes. so I think it's one of those things it sort of fluctuates and sometimes I'm bothered about it sometimes I'm not like Blake 7 for example which is a show that I absolutely love as you know and as listeners have cottoned on because I've mentioned it a few times in the podcast now Um, I mean that had a budget a lot less than Doctor Who and in fact what happened was when Blake 7 was originally commissioned uh, it, it was replaced. The time slot it was replacing was a TV detective show called Softly Softly. Mm. It didn't just take its uh, broadcast slot; it took its production. It, it they were producing Blake Seven, a science fiction show, with the same budget as a TV detective show. Oh, okay. Uh, now, the now the models that they produced for that show, especially of the Liberator, the set design for the Liberator looks great. Sometimes the show does look a bit ropey, and the lack of production does show. But what they did have was cracking good stories, good characters, and good actors, mm-hmm. and that's the main thing. And I, I really, really enjoyed Blake Seven. And I think that's that's the yeah. main thing. I'd like to check that out. I, I remember watching Blake Seven. It must be mid or late nineties, mm-hmm. and I remember thinking, "God, this looks awful." <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned. Fang Rock earlier um, he said visually that that looks good and of course that's again quite a dark story isn't it visually I mean um, so you, of course you don't need well lit sets to have a visually appealing story do you? Uh, no no that's true but I mean I mean one story 
I, I really love to at some point uh, for, for us to review Warriors of the Deep because I know that's a story that you like and enjoy. I'm not keen on it. And one of the things I'm not keen on is um, actually I think the sets are massively overlit and I think it's a detriment of the show. Okay. Um, but anyway, that's a conversation for another time. To get back to your original question, um, I do think season 24 is a bit of a, a transition. I think Delta and the Bannerman looks cheap and it's not just in terms of set designs and things like that. It's also, you can really tell it's shot on uh, video. Yeah. Which I don't think helps. Um, but something like Paradise Towers, uh, I quite like and that's fine. Um, but yeah, I think by the time you get to season 25, um, not only is the story uh, story writing better, uh, but I also think the way that the story's produced has improved. Yeah. I haven't noticed this before until I revisited Remembrance of the Daleks, but like I mentioned before, the the camera work is so good. It's it, there's locked off cameras, there's pans. Mm-hmm. It, it and um, a lot of it's pretty seamless. There's no um, wobbly handheld moments, really. No, 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 no. I think there's a lot that a modern television audience would enjoy with Remembrance. Mm-hmm. I don't think it would. I think probably the only thing that would be surprised with is how short the episodes are. Yeah. Um, but other than that, speaking of transitions, you could mm-hmm. say you could say Remembrance is a transition from the classic to the new era, couldn't you? Yes, yeah, yeah, you could, um, because it's a really good, fast-paced action uh, adventure story, which mm. is thematically interesting. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. There's one thing um, I've just thought of because I've got Remembrance playing in the background now. It's on its um, it's on its second time round, I think now. Oh, since we've started this podcast, but there's a bit <laughs> in uh, in Tottersley and Junkyard, mm-hmm. um, when. The, the Dalek shoots the first of the, um, the soldiers mm-hmm. and you see his skeleton yeah and that's something that is used in the modern era yeah that, that uh... it's more of an x-ray kind of thing in the, in the modern era but um, mm-hmm. I always thought that was adopted from Re- Remembrance yeah yeah that's right because this is this is the um, Remembrance is the first time that extermination effect is used mm-hmm. speaking of Tarsley and Junkyard it doesn't quite match up with how we think we will remember it in the pilot, and in yeah, in an unearthly child, mm-hmm. because the gate to Tars Lane is not down an alleyway in the original story, is it? No, no, it's not. I think um, I think you can almost get away with it though. Could, um, there, could there be another entrance, a gate on the other side, perhaps? Oh, that's true. Yeah, you could, you could take it. Yeah, yeah, could take it from that. Yeah, yeah. Let's think that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So another thing, I hate to pick faults with the story, but the Doctor is in Coalhill School and he sees landing patterns from the shuttlecraft. Mm-hmm. So would you imagine that this means the shuttlecraft has landed there? Yes. Previously. Yeah. Okay. So when the Doctor and Ace are up in the classroom with Gilmore and the shuttlecraft comes down oh you're going to mention the the windows the windows yeah how did they not break the first time well maybe they did and they thought it was students 
Oh, well, not uh, students, maybe. pupils that were responsible. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose windows can be replaced. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the Doctor never seems to reminisce about Susan, does he? No, funny enough, uh, I was thinking that uh, when I watched it on this occasion. Um, but given could, given but, the nature of the story, yeah. Mm. Yeah, but I suppose that could be uh, linked to the fact that, you know, th- this Doctor is, uh, you know, when he's got a plan in motion, which he clearly has in this story, he's entirely focused on it. Yeah. Um, so you could argue, maybe yeah, maybe it would have been quite nice if, a uh, bit more of an obvious reference was made but um, it could be explained in relation to the Doctor's character that he is entirely focused on something else and hasn't got time to reminisce yeah of course with the narrative it might have been a step too far for the audience you know if this story is accessible to people who have not seen the original mm-hmm. episodes um, bringing in this whole thing of him um, missing Susan um, that might confuse the viewers a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Although I always thought it could have been the Doctor touching the French Revolution book, not Ace. That could have been a chance for a little moment, couldn't it? Ah, true, possibly, yeah. Mm, yeah. Oh, I haven't mentioned the special weapons Dalek. Because, of course, the renegade Daleks seem to have the upper hand, don't they? They kind of kick ass in the first little air battle. Yeah, the Imperial Daleks are crap. Yeah. What the hell? Um, but yeah, then they get the the special weapons dog, which is interesting as well because it's not surprising that they're crap. Given you know, because when you compare the special weapons Dalek, I mean, it's 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 a manky looking thing. It's yeah. clearly seen a lot of action. Yeah, and when you compare it to the, the, the Daleks, who look so pristine. Yeah, uh, it's, it's like, like, it's like the Imperial they, are Daleks they, are the upper class Daleks, are the middle class well, yeah. ones, and they, <laughs> they, they don't, they don't like, do the fighting. Like, yeah, are they more bureaucratic Daleks? <laughs> it's like what? But yeah, I, but having said that, though, I mean the special weapons Dalek, I think, is a fantastic um, invention yeah. for the series, and the 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 the, uh, the prop, if you if if I can put it like that, uh, looks amazing. Yeah, I love it, how it looks rusty and greasy. Yes, Look, yeah, yeah, looks well used. And it's just, it's just this, you know, compact tank. Yeah, <laughs> it certainly blows the other Daleks uh, off the face of the earth. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and we see it again in Asylum, don't we? Well, yeah, I suppose we do. Yeah, <laughs> not no, utilized not... properly, is it? No. Well, the thing is, because the way that Asylum of the Daleks was sort of advertised was that all these classic Dalek designs were uh, were coming back, and it looked <laughs> like it was going to be a major thing. It was just like, oh, this is going to be amazing. But it's like blinking and you'll, you'll miss it. So you have to squint, yeah, exactly. you have to, squint to see one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The time controller. <laughs> it's just a plasma ball. Um, were people in the 80s aware of plasma balls quite well? Yes. I don't think so at this stage. I think they were probably just becoming a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I know I was watching that. I just got yeah, because we sort of know where, where they... Because, you know, you used to have loads of, uh, sort of like gadget shops in the late 90s selling them. Yeah. Uh, and you could guarantee whenever there was like a science uh, museum for kids, they'd always have one. Do you remember there was a massive one at the um, Discovery, Discovery Museum? Museum. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, That's cool. Uh, so that's the sort of thing. But, 
you know you don't see them now do you you know there's not any shops that sell them uh no. they're not in science museums anymore no so so maybe now uh it's it's come full circle for remembrance of the daleks where this thing looks amazing because you don't see it anywhere yeah. else all the kids these days will be thinking whoa what's that <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's just, that? it's wow, just special it's, effects. Yeah, it's just special effects, and it's giving yeah. off electricity. Wow. Yeah, the um the time controller with it being a plasma ball, that's been adapted upon by Big Finish because well, there's a character called the time controller now, and he's a he's a a Dalek who is more of an individual. You know, he doesn't um he doesn't answer to the Dalek Empire. You know. All oh, right. Okay. And behind his neck is like a plasma ball, so they've kind of used that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I don't want to go too much into it. Um, uh, uh, what gonna... story is in this? I'm sorry. It's in a fifth Doctor story, um, in the monthly range, um, and it's also in Dark Eyes to quite an extent, and the Time War, as well, the Time War series. All oh, right, okay. So we talk about Davros. Oh yeah, what do you think of his new look? <laughs> um, I've always quite liked it until a couple. Of, I mean, I still do, but it has been slightly ruined. Uh, I forgot. I mean, because I, I suppose it's it's an obvious uh, thing to say, but I'd never seen it. Uh, a couple of years ago, I forgot what it was, but someone described it as a roller on deodorant, <laughs> um, which was just like. Oh yeah, it does sort of look like that. Oh, shame. Um, <laughs> what do you think? I didn't think that till now, and now that's all I think. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I've yeah. now ru- ruined Remembrance of the Daleks for everyone. Is that um, adapted from the comics? This big dome. Yes, I think it is. I do think it's a, a reference to. I mean, it would have been great if it looked a bit more, more of it, more like, like a Dalek, more like that, and it was sort of like gold. Um, yeah. I think that would have been a great uh, a great look. Um, and maybe yeah, yeah. The, the ball could have been bigger, couldn't it? Maybe twice as big. <laughs> yeah. So, do we assume, I know this isn't the case, but Davros hasn't got much of his body left? I think so. And especially because uh, the Doctor makes a comment that he's 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 gone a further step of abandoning his human form or words that effect. Yeah. Um, but of so course, yeah. yeah. Mm. In um, Journey's End, we see Davros, and of course, he's just missing his hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, Journey's End made me think of this. You know, um, McCoy was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a couple of stories about what happened after for Davros. Um, BBC Books, I believe, have a story about... Um, this version of Davros, um, but the more accepted one, I think, has to be um, a big Finnish story called Terra Firma, which accounts for what um, what happens next with Davros after he's escaped. Oh, okay, that'll be interesting to listen mm. to. I have heard of that one. Yeah, yeah. the Daleks aren't very discreet about um, Davros' escape. Another, like, it could be one of them things. You know, when you think, ooh. Did that character survive? But instead, the, the Daleks give us a run-in commentary about what's happening. You know, he's leaving the bridge. He's he's getting into the escape pod. He's he's left. You know. <laughs> yeah. See, there's I no think... doubt. I wasn't left thinking. I wonder if Davros escaped. 
That's true. I never thought of it along those lines. Yeah, you do. You do get a sort of running commentary on yeah. it. I think. Um, I think it's one of those things where it's obviously to inform the audience of what's going on. Yeah. But yeah, I suppose there could have been some mystery left. Yeah. But if, um, but I suppose it ramps up the excitement of the scene because we know that the hand of Omega is going back to the Dalek ship to. Um, uh, to destroy it. Yeah. Um, I th- and I suppose it, it could be argued that it's just to have the Daleks say something else. Yeah. Um, so it helps ramp up the excitement of what's yeah. going on. Although I did say about this story, we don't see anything off screen. But then again, in this instance, maybe we do. You know, the, the, the Daleks have to tell us this is happening because we don't get to see Davros exiting his lift and rushing off into his escape pod and, you know... <laughs> Jetson out this tunnel and it's not that dramatic. No, but if if you look at the model shot, that looks like uh, something when flares it out. Up, yeah, something like there's a white thing that sort of like drops down. Yeah. So I'm assuming that's the. Does that mean he lands on Earth? Well, you're gonna have to listen to Terra Firma. Oh yes, yeah, okay. <laughs> Judging by the title, I assume he does. <laughs> <laughs> Bit of a giveaway. Yes. <laughs> So you like the scene with um, the Doctor talking the Dalek to death, don't you? Yes, yes, I do, yeah. You mentioned that. Did you mention that last week on the podcast? Or did we just WhatsApp that? I can't remember. No, no, I, th- I, th- I, think, we did, I, th- I think we did talk about it on the podcast, unless, unless it was edited out. But I do remember talking about it last week, yeah. yeah. Um, yes, uh, I, I do like that scene, and it was quite nice. Cause, but the thing is, when we were talking about it last time, I, I was talking about it from memory. Um, now talking about it f- from having watched the story again, yes, I, I still I still like it. I still think it it holds up. Um, it shows the Seventh Doctor to to be ruthless. It's um, and it, it carries much more of an impact than I remembered because obviously this is from after he has blown up Scaro, blown up um, the Daleks' uh, mothership, and now he's approaching a Dalek. It's like wow, he's just. This guy's not messing around. No, and it's very um, kind of objectified. Well, it, that sorry, and it's it's very much like that was his objective mm-hmm. to to do this to the Dalek. You know, mm-hmm. he know he knows what to do. He knows what he's doing. It's quite cold, calculated. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and the, the dark fact... Doctor. Yeah, and uh, I mean, as I, as I said before, I mean, the Seventh Doctor is dark. Sometimes I do think it's certainly when you get the Virgin New Adventures. I do think it's overstated a bit too much, but I mean, certainly with this story, towards the end, with with what he's done, and then not only does he do, do these uh, questionable things through through action, which is involved genocide and massive explosions and so on, he's also deadly just using the power of words. Yes, when he's got the bat of Omega and he's smashing up the transmat and it breaks, he <laughs> says, um. Weapons are never any good in the end. Yes, yeah, yeah. On Twitter, I asked, um, what are people's favourite or most memorable moments from Remembrance of the Daleks? All right, yeah. Um, Greg Campbell says, cliffhanger from episode two with Ace surrounded by the Daleks. Watching it at the time as a seven-year-old, I could not wait to see the next episode. Yeah, it was quite an exciting 
one of all the cliffhangers, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because I, th I mean, I think all the, the cliffhangers are brilliant, but I mean, even we said, I think that was uh, that was our favourite. Yeah, and like, um, the action, the music, it really ramps up the tension, doesn't it? The, the, yeah, yeah. The excitement, yeah. William says the hovering Dalek was his favourite moment. Mm -hmm. um, Gaz says, can I say episodes one to four? <laughs> <laughs> I adore this story and it's full of fantastic moments. Yes, yes, you can say that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm not going to disagree with that. Disagree with you on that one. Yeah, it's fantastic. Totally. Uh, yeah, that's probably the best response. Um, Doctor Who, the Target World podcast, said the large explosions, great dialogue between Davros and the Doctor, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and the audio book as well. Uh, so I haven't listened to the audio book. Um, no, and in fact, uh, I haven't read the Target novelization, and I have heard that it's meant to be one of the best, uh, along with, um, I think, the novelization for The Curse of Fenric. I'm slightly confused here, sorry. Um, there's, of course, a tar Target novelization of this story. Yeah. And there's a, there's a recent publication of the novelization of this story, isn't there? Is it is it not just a republication of the target, the original target? Well, that's what I had assumed. I wondered if there was any difference. No, um, but I also know that there's two different audiobooks, one of each. Uh, you know, um, readings of the story. Ah, oh, right. Sorry, I, I, I just assumed it. Um, it was a an audiobook of the target novelization. Yeah. Oh, okay. But there's um. There's an audiobook of the re-release as well. I'm sure it's the same one. But, oh, right, okay. but I, I think the new one has um, Dalek Voices by Nick Briggs in as well. Ah, right, okay. But yeah, it's just a curious thing. Just yesterday I was thinking, is there two novelizations? <laughs> <laughs> um, so back to our, back to Twitter. Sorvix, if I pronounced that correctly. Um, Ace battling the Dalek, Dalek hovering, and Dalek civil war. Yes, I, 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 I'm surprised we haven't... Uh, Mentioned the battle. Well, yeah, well, uh, Ace... Uh, oh, the oh yes, the baseball of course, bat. yeah. yeah. I mean, because that, that's another classic scene. That's absolutely fantastic. And that, uh, not only is it great, but it also um, establishes Ace in a, in a, in a very strong yeah. way. Because this is, this is her second story. Her first... Um, properly as the companion and in fact because that's another interesting thing as well when the story starts they've clearly had the, I mean the way that I read it they've clearly had some adventures between Dragonfire and this story um, with the way that they're interacting um, but in terms of us the viewer the fact that she's in the dark with the baseball bat which is just yeah. really cool um, uh, it's, uh, it's a big sort of character defining moment for her as well yeah I think this moment might shock fans as well because you're left thinking God, you're destroying that beautiful prop <laughs> <laughs> Was that just me? <laughs> I think that's just you Yeah um, Graham on Twitter has said his favourite moment is everything This story is perfection mm -hmm. No, again, fair enough uh, I don't think there's there's much to uh, I mean, it's, it is regarded as a classic um, story and I think there's a re you know there's a reason for that because it yeah. it's bloody brilliant yeah yeah the Theta Sigma Doctor Who podcast has said um, 
without a doubt the best McCoy story, Ace learning from the Professor, the Doctor at his manip- manipulative best, and and the Daleks are as ruthless as we've seen them on TV. Um, 10 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think once again I'd agree with most of that. I mean, I've got other stories which, um, Sylvester McCoy stories which I prefer over this, personally, but not only is it one of the not only does it remain one of the best McCoy stories I think it's one of the best Doctor Who stories um, and whenever Doctor Who magazine uh, you know does a ranking of all the stories I think uh, I mean I may be wrong in this but I think I think remember it's, uh, it's comfortably always in the top 20 which I think is a good, you know, a good position yeah it, no surprise yeah. yeah yeah who art thou on Twitter <laughs> has said I like the bit when they save Ace by attacking her assailants with a sparkly rainbow beam destroyed by the power of Fabulous. (laughs) Oh, that's fantastic. Yes, I love (laughs) it. Destroyed by the power of Fabulous. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. I'm never going to look at uh, that scene uh, uh, the same way ever again. Just, yeah. Rainbow power, fabulousness. So so flamboyant. Uh, Yeah, brilliant. Yeah. So, um, just to wrap things up, so in terms of a ranking, what, what would you give Remembrance? Oh, 10 out of 10. <laughs> <laughs> well, that answers that question. Yes. Uh, it's a tough one. There's so many good stories, but um, but yeah, what, why mark it down? Yeah, exactly. I mean, because that's the thing. It's sort of, as I said, uh, there, there are other McCoy stories that I, uh, I prefer over this one, but so there's a th- but at the same time, it's, ah, but it's still a bloody good one. I'd still give it ten out of ten. Yeah. yeah. And we usually love to nitpick things, and we haven't found many faults with this today, have we? No, I mean we're Doctor Who fans, of course we love to bloody nitpick. Yeah. What we like, but um, but yeah, no, I think uh, um, yeah, because I think I mean s- some of the uh, the comments that that you read, uh, they've basically said that they love the whole entire story, uh, that it is it is perfection. And um, yeah, it's, it, it still remains one of the best Doctor Who stories ever. Um, not just in the McCoy era, but as a whole. It's, it, it's, it's superb. On a final note, should we talk about the opening titles? Do you think they stand the test of time? And did they ever look bad? Oh, you, uh, you mean the title sequence? Title sequence, yes. Uh, yes, I still think they look uh, look good. I suppose if you, I suppose the only thing that maybe has dated is is the look of the the meteorites that tumble into that's uh, into the the purple gaseous globe thing. Yeah. Um, but other than that, and I can forgive it. I don't think it. I don't think they look awful. Um, but everything else, I think, still looks really good. How about you? No, I think it's good. It, of course, it's very eighties. You know. <laughs> well, they had CGI, why not have a CGI TARDIS, you know? <laughs> it probably looks... It doesn't look as um, rustic and and real, but then again, it's, it's not. It's CGI. It's great. I, yeah. do, I do miss the um, the genuine kind of lens flare Starfield of the 80s that we had. Uh-huh. And the Starfield we get in the McCoy era is more like blurry white dots. Um, so uh, yeah, ha- had it been a mix of both, you know... They could have got these um, these practical effects, blue um, lens flare kind of stars in the mm-hmm. background, with with a mix of the CGI. You know, maybe the best of both worlds. But um, otherwise, no, it's good. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I absolutely love it. I think it's. Uh, I mean, I love. 
I love the uh, the version of the theme tune, and I lo- and I just think it is a great title sequence because it just travels, mm-hmm. uh, and I think the uh, the designers of it wanted to have this feel of you know that you were going through a roller coaster ride through the universe, and they certainly do that, and it's it's tremendously exciting. Yeah, um, yeah no, I, I love the, uh, the, the the title sequence and uh, and the music. Yeah, it's not something I would ever skip. You know, if it was ever on Netflix. I'd never be like, oh, skip title. <laughs> <laughs> no, definitely not. I love, uh, I love the title yeah. sequence. I quite like the logo. Yes, I, li- I like the logo. I mean, again, it's, it is very 80s and it's... Uh, it and is a, And it does... It, f- it flies overhead um, almost like the TV movie does. You know, the Who is in 3D. Mm-hmm. Um, but it does a very quite complicated... Um, <laughs> Sort of like a camera movement where it's sort of uh, it's tumbling towards you and it sort of flips round and then you whiz across. Sort of like you pan over to the right and then it falls into place. Yeah. Um, there's some. I mean, I don't think it's the best Doctor Who logo. No. Uh, but there is something about it that I like. I mean, I, I like it's... the um, the beveled silver lettering of Who, and the fact that Doctor's written in. Like a like someone's yeah. handwritten it in yellow, uh, it shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah, we haven't had anything like it before. It's usually quite, quite symmetrical and proportionate, isn't it? The logo usually, uh-huh. um, but this is definitively the McCoy logo. Yeah, and there's something, there's something very, str- there's something a bit free and open and very bold about it. Yeah, I was never a big fan of the neon logo, and that was over three doctors, wasn't it? Yeah, I quite like the neon logo. I would say if there's one logo that I'm not particularly keen on, and don't get me wrong, I don't think it's bad design. You know, there's the diamond. Like, no, I love the diamond logo. No, it's it's the Eccleston and Tennant one. Oh God, I just think it. I what just were they th- thinking? I just think it's a bit dull. Yeah, um, what's worse, having it kind of plastered on the merchandise, or having it spinning around on screen? Does it Pro- d- probably spinning on screen? <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you think? Um, I quite like, you know, it looked quite different during series one to three. It was more of like a gold bronze background, and mm-hmm. then from series four onwards, they used the kind of merchandising logo, which was the the orange background. Right. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I, yeah. I know what you mean. Yeah, um, so I liked the former one, mm-hmm. but but I didn't. But then again, I didn't really like it at all. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 not a bad design. I think I just think it's all right. Yeah. But I think uh, when I think the original designers, because I, I think I was, uh, if I remember rightly, I think this was on a Doctor Who Confidential when they were first launching it. Um, they had a section about designing the logo. And what the designers were looking at was how other science fiction shows and movies do their own logos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think, so to me, it, um, what they produced was, I mean, so they probably matched the, matched the remit, but what they produced was just quite a generic logo. But it was quite, it, quite identifiable though, wasn't it? Yeah, having said that, yeah, it, it was identifiable and striking. So yeah, they did the job. Yes. I just think, I think it could have been a bit more bold and a bit more. Mm. 
Just, but you know, it's, it's. I mean, it's it's fine, and I don't go. I hate that logo with a passion because I'm not insane. But um, I just like if I was to, maybe we should. I don't know if this is really sad. If we were to sit down and rank Doctor Who logos, <laughs> rank the logos, rank the logos, I think I'd probably put that one at the bottom. Yeah, I think um, even the one after the Eccleston logo, which is the. Um... The one we got from Matt Smith and Campali. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was a bit dull. Obviously, the Matt Smith one had the DW logo TARDIS, mm-hmm. which I thought was a bit bit unusual, a bit childish. I don't know. Um, all of a sudden, the show was called Doctor DW Who, and they had this TARDIS in the middle of the sh- middle of the sh- middle of the screen. Um, and then we get to Capaldi and the 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 drop the TARDIS logo. Mm-hmm. And then all, all of a sudden you realise it's really lacking something, and the font isn't as identifiable as the Pertwee font, is it? Actually, now that you come to mention, because uh, actually, because I know what you mean about having the the DW logo in the middle of Doctor Who, I thought yeah. that was a bit of an odd choice. But in the title sequence, the the way that it animates into the TARDIS, yeah, I thought actually looked quite good, so that was fine. But actually, now that you come to mention it, I cannot remember what the, the Peter Capaldi logo looks like. Well, it was essentially the same font that you'd see the Doctor, then the TARDIS logo, then the Who. But it was just, they removed the TARDIS. So it was less recognisable. Well, maybe that maybe that's the worst logo then, because yeah. it's I can't, I can't remember it. Yeah. I do like the um, Jodie Whittaker logo. Yes, I th- yeah, yeah, that's yeah. really good. Um, and it kind of incorporates the the female symbol in, doesn't it? Yeah, it does, which I, th- I think is quite nice because it's uh, it's a nice touch. It's not in your face, but mm. it's there. You know, again, it's sort of um, if you notice it, it's there, and yeah. I think it's a nice touch. Yeah. But you know, actually, just uh, on a final point, because you know how we've been talking about the the Blu-ray box sets and how they've been rebranded with with that new logo. Yeah. And we we'll hope, uh, and certainly people like me who are buying them, hope that the logo doesn't change so there's that consistency over the box sets and they all blend in. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, there's something be- <laughs> that no one could have foreseen, that the certificate logos will be changing as of next year. The BBFC ones? Yes. Ah. See, I'm, I did miss the old ones when they changed. Uh-huh. Um, but now I've got used to the new ones finally. But they're changing. Oh, we're yeah. still are they still having the same certificates, but di- st- but but different kind of branding. Is that what you mean? Yeah, yeah. So the certificates will be the same. So there'll be a UPG and so on. But the look of them are different. So they're a lot more simpler. Because uh, <laughs> but... they were so hard to understand. <laughs> no, no. I mean. <laughs> Sorry, no. I mean the look of them. They've, they've, they've simplified the look. Yeah. Um, but uh, and they've also changed the color scheme. So, for example, a certificate fifteen is in a, a bright pink circle. Yeah. Oh. I mean, I did see a, a bloke today, and he had a big white T-shirt on, and on the back of his T-shirt was the eighteen certificate logo. <laughs> and I was thinking, <laughs> what does that even mean? <laughs> Yeah, is he eighteen? Is he only suitable for adults? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Who knows? And why is it on the back? Trying to think. Strange. <laughs> so that's annoying. Maybe they'll have 
reversible covers with the old BBFC logo. <laughs> <laughs> Re- replaceable sleeves something Repla- I don't know yeah um, I, yeah I, I want replaceable sleeves so all the certificates <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised you know um, I will see so time will tell yeah yep <laughs> <laughs> it always does it always does yeah and that's another great thing about Remembrance of the Daleks it's provided a quote that you can actually use in real life conversations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. The Brannon will will change. It always does. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The, it never yeah. matches. <laughs> it never matches. God, everyone's going to be furious, aren't they? If it changes <laughs> for the Blu-rays. Well, it is. I think. Yeah. Um, I think in general, not just in terms of uh, not talking about Doctor Who. I think in general. Because even though they legally don't have to be used until, I think, summer next year. Anyway, sometime next year. Uh, I think you will start to see them phased in within the next couple of months. See what? Oh, the BBFC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, I thought you meant the new Doctor Who logo. I was thinking that's already been phased in. <laughs> no, no, no. Sorry, yeah, yeah the, uh, the certificates, uh... yeah. So anyway, yes, uh, go back to Remembrance quite briefly. I think, uh, yeah, it's a cracking good story. It's regarded as a classic uh we both ranked it 10 out of 10 so i think it's safe to say that we like it there's a there's an awful lot to uh i mean um there's i mean obviously you like doctor who and there's a lot of stories that i like but certain stories even though i like them sort of got to be in the mood to watch them but remembrance of the daleks is one of those where i could quite happily watch any time yeah uh so that's that um so next week we'll be returning back to Big Finish uh, where we'll be looking at episode 3 of The Legacy of Time. Yep, coming for that. The Sacrifice of Joe Grant. Yep, so should be a good one. Okay. Bye everyone. Bye everyone. Bye.